Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> uh, um, if I haven't met you, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we're going to be in John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 18. We're going to finish up John 18. And uh, so if you don't have a Bible this morning, if you didn't bring one or you forgot one or you don't own one, uh, we'd love for you to, to read along with us. So just keep your hand raised, and uh, one of the ushers would gladly put one in your hand. And um, if you want to keep this Bible, you can, well, you can keep it. We like giving away things for free. Um, uh, a couple things I wanted to highlight before we dive into the Gospel of John. One is, um, there's a, a one more, oh, Frank's got you, he's coming. Um, uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, once a year, uh, depending on how uh, on our game we are as a staff and leadership, we produce a, a report called VISTA, and it tells you about everything that we've done as a church over the year, what we've accomplished, you know, baptisms and um, all of those kind of things. And there are some available to info booth, and they're, they're online. All the last, like, four or five years are online. And one of the things I mentioned uh, several months ago was a couple needs that we were praying about. One was uh, replacing um, our church van, which I uh, have named the Death Box because it's super unsafe. Um, and one was uh, our video screens, which need to be replaced. All of the audio, uh, not audio, all the visual side of things, the switches that go to all the TVs in the church. Uh, and so I just wanted to give you an update on those. One of them, someone donated um, a used church van. So we got a church van, um, and it's, it's no longer called the death box. And uh, it, it'll get us by for a few years. It's a used uh, van, and so we're excited for that. It, it is black, which I kind of felt a little weird about, like the church driving around in a midnight black van, you know. Uh, super safe. Um, and so anyways, we got a van. And then we've raised so far half of the funds for uh, the screens. So we, we've been told it's going to cost a minimum of $25,000, uh, which I know sounds super expensive, um, and it is. But we're about halfway there, and so we're, we're still praying for the rest of that to come in so we can replace these screens. You'll, if you'll notice, every now and then they shut down, and there'll be a little hourglass that spins. It's hard to, it's hard to worship to that hourglass. Um, so we're looking to replace them. They're 13 years old. So the, the wires that connect everything are older than that. And the screens and, and all of that are 13 years old. So it's just time to upgrade all of it. We're getting rid of all the old stuff. And um, we have a church that would probably donate all of our stuff to that, that they said, all your used stuff is better than our stuff. So just give it to us, please, is basically what they said. I said, sure, man, we'll hook you up. And so we're going to donate that stuff when we have the opportunity. And then the other thing I want to let you know about, last week I let you know that we're, we're looking to um, add a children's church program to our 830 service. And so if you're a parent and you would love to come to the 830 service and you have kids that have hindered you from doing that because we only provide 1030, um, within time we're looking to add, uh, add that. And so we mentioned we needed help for that. And several people have volunteered to say, yep, we want to help. And so we've got some new volunteers there. And then this week someone came to me and said, hey, uh, what are some of the needs that you have? One of the things that we've done is we've hired part-time Joe and Abby Casey. They're our new children's church directors. And so... He's here several days during the week, but one of the things that makes it really difficult is he's had to work on Saturday nights, and so it's been very difficult for him to be here on Sunday morning. In addition to the fact that we want to add something at 8.30, it's even harder, so that was kind of a hiccup. I didn't even let anybody know about that. I've just been praying for it, and then someone came and said, what need do you have, and mentioned that, that one of the needs was to get Joe away from his Saturday night job and to be here more during the week so he could pour more into our children's program uh, on Sundays. And so someone came and donated a portion of, of that salary for, for Joe and Abby. And so good news is we're, we're going to pour even more energy and more resources into your kids. And so hopefully all the parents said, amen. All right. Is that cool or what? I think it's super cool. So God continues to provide for us, though we don't deserve it. And so I am, I'm thankful, uh, especially since if the ship goes down, I'd be going down with it, you know? So um, those things are encouraging to me. Okay, the Lord does build his church. Whew, okay, all right. Obviously, you don't care as much as me, but that's right. Um, we, uh, we are a church that cares deeply about God's word, and so if you're new, uh, we stand during the reading of our scripture time, and so if you're able to this morning, we want to encourage you to stand with us as we read from John chapter 18, and go to uh, verse 28 is where we're going to start. Now, if you remember, 
from last week, Jesus has just gone through three religious trials, uh, one before Annas and Caiaphas, and then the Sanhedrin as a whole. So the past high priest, the current high priest, and then the governing authority of the Jewish people. Now the Jews are under government rule, and they want to put Jesus to death, and they don't have the authority to do that. They need Pilate's help. And then we go to the next phase of Jesus' trials in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter into the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled. But, but, but <laughs> oof, I got a stuttering problem this morning. But could eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They said to him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered into the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world. Notice the connotation that Jesus mentions, both that he was born and he's come into the world to show us the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, that he both was born of a woman, there's his humanity, and that he has come into the world, his preexistence. To bear witness of the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. And everyone said, Amen. This morning, you may be seated. This morning, um, I'm talking about the idea of Jesus' upside-down kingdom. He alludes to this reality, standing before Pilate, that his kingdom is not of this world. He is a king, but it's not of this world. And it's it's kind of hard for us sometimes, really, I should say it's hard probably for me as a Bible teacher or as someone trying to get large ideas across as quickly and as efficiently as possible on a Sunday morning. The idea of God's kingdom uh, is a big idea. It goes all the way back in the Old Testament into the New Testament and God being a king. When you think of God as king or you think of someone as being king, the king has subjects that he rules over and then a dominion, an area that he rules over. And one of the things that we typically ask or what theologians ask or Christians may ask is if God is king, is God's kingdom, when we see kingdom in the New Testament, especially, is God's kingdom uh, now or is it in the future? Does anyone know the answer to that? The answer is yes. It's, it's, both, it's both now and in the future. Jesus is always ruling. He's always been ruling. He's always been king. He's never not been king. And then what does it look like to be part of this kingdom? And it's an upside-down kingdom. I think we struggle a little bit in the idea of rule in the United States because, you know, we have a system where we vote our leadership in as opposed to it being a monarchy where, where one rules from the top down. We're part of a monarchy. But it's not the monarchy that you think of like in North Korea, is it? The answer is no. So in North Korea, you have a system where a man has been put into rule basically because his credentials, his credentials were that his, his dad was in rule, Right? And so in a monarchy, typically it would be passed down inside of family, and you'd see throughout history different times where this occurred where someone would murder someone else so that they could then take the throne because they had the blood right to the throne. And then within most monarchies, you would see in that system that the king ruled and that the idea behind that would be that the people would be subject to that rule. Uh, And Jesus obviously leads differently. It's it's an upside-down, backwards kind of kingdom. Now we'll talk about that here more in a moment, I want to paint the scene for you here. In verse 28, you'll see, oops, sorry, 
In verse 28, I don't have notes for this, I'm sorry, but in verse 28, you'll see this. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, as the current high priest, to the governor's headquarters. Now, some of your translations may use the word praetorium. Um, the praetorium was a structure, it was a castle-like structure that was actually attached to the temple mount, and it overlooked the crowds inside of the temple. What you have to understand is the, the Jews were still subject to Roman rule, and the Jews still had a certain way of life. And in that, they, they celebrated certain kind of festivals. There's four major festivals they would celebrate. The biggest one is happening right now. It's the Passover. And if you remember last week, we saw from Josephus, who was a historian, who said at one particular Passover, 256,000 lambs were sacrificed in one day. To give you an idea of the amount of people that would have come from all over the world, the known world at that time, to find forgiveness from God. And they would travel to the temple, and it'd be hundreds of thousands of people would show up for these festivals. And because the Jews were not ruled by the Roman government, the Roman government still was worried that they would lose a grip on their people. And so this castle-like structure was used specifically for these kind of festivals that, that the ruling governor, as well as the army with him, would hang out in case any issues arose, in case there would be any kind of rebellion or crazy thing that would happen. They could quickly take control of the situation. Now, what you have to understand here for Pilate, Pilate didn't live within the praetorium. Pilate, actually, he was known as a as kind of a callous man. Uh, he was known as not, not a very good ruler. He had, he had a history of actually offending the Jews through various ways. The Jews didn't like him. He didn't like the Jews. And he didn't live within the praetorium. Do you know where Pilate lived? He lived at the beach uh, of Caesarea by the sea. He, he didn't hang out here. He didn't want to be in Jerusalem. He wanted to be at the ocean. Some of you did that this week, didn't you? Spring break? A few of you? Four. So four of you went to the beach. You went because you wanted to get out of the area. And it's a, kind of a big deal at wintertime. We've got people who leave Truckee during the winter to go somewhere warmer. And I don't blame you for that, but Pilate's that kind of guy. The only reason Pilate was here was because of the festival. He had, uh, he had an obligation to rule over the Jews at this time if anything went down. Now, to add to that, note in verse 29, Pilate has to come out of the praetorium to meet with the Jewish people. And we're told specifically why. Because the Jews, the Pharisees, did not want to go into the praetorium lest they become unclean and not, and, and not have the ability to practice the Sabbath. So now imagine you have a man who's in Jerusalem who doesn't want to be in Jerusalem. He wants to be at the sea of Caesarea. And now, not only this, but he's got to deal with these Jews that he doesn't want to deal with. He's got a tense relationship with them. He probably wants to be in the comfort of the praetorium where Jesus is because Jesus is a captive prisoner and he can't be in the praetorium doing what he wants to do in the praetorium. He has to actually get up, walk outside and deal with the Jews because the Jews were concerned that if they went inside the praetorium because, uh, because Pilate was a Gentile and the house was a Gentile home, that they then would become unclean and they wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover. So he has to oblige them. So he's getting up, he's walking out, he's not at the ocean, he's at Jerusalem, and he's now dealing with these people. And as he's talking with them, he has to go through the process of now talking to, Pi, uh, I'm sorry, talking to uh, the, the Sanhedrin and the Jews and going back in and asking Jesus certain questions. So you can probably see that Pilate is not excited to be doing this. He, this isn't something he wants to be a part of. And then on the other side of it, you see the great hypocrisy of the Pharisees. You see, they're willing to break the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. But I don't want to be unclean, so I will not go into the praetorium, lest I not celebrate the Passover. There's great hypocrisy here. The great theologian D.A. Carson says, The Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover. At the very same time, they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him who alone is the true Passover. They don't realize what they have before them. And then, of course, Pilate asked the question, what charge do you bring against Jesus? And there is no charge. If you notice, they make an excuse. They say, well, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't be delivering him to you. 
They don't answer the question. And so you can see Pilate's disdain for the situation. He says, well, then you deal with them. Deal with them according to your own laws and your own customs. Why is he here? And then the Jews, they show their hands. Oh, well, we can't put someone to death unless you allow it, unless you do it. And the reason for this is because the Romans didn't want to allow someone who basically uh, were prisoners within their own country the ability to kill somebody that may be a friend of Rome. They didn't, they didn't want that, so they couldn't allow them to put to death their own people. And then Jesus answers the question in, in a very peculiar way. But before we get that, look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, the Jews, um, let's go to verse 31, the end of it there. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So we see the fulfillment of Scripture again, the fulfillment of prophecy. As we talked about last week, that Jesus was not a victim. He was a volunteer in this. And he was in complete control of the situation. He's mastering it so that, that his sovereignty is never in question in this, that he volunteered to die, that he wasn't a victim. And then in John chapter 12, verse, verse 32, Jesus says this, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then in verse 33 of John 12, it then says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is important because Jesus was a Jew. And if you broke Jewish law, you were to be put to death. How did the Jews put other Jews to death? Who knows? They stoned them. It's not drugs, okay? It's not, it's not that kind of stoning. It's to pick up rocks and throw them at that particular person and take their life. And Jesus wasn't going to die a Jewish death. He died the death, a Roman death, the way that Romans executed uh, people of the most, the worst kind of crimes, the heinous kind of crimes. In fact, the beating that Jesus took was not supposed to be for Romans. Romans, Romans wouldn't even, if you were a Roman citizen, you would never have to worry about this kind of punishment. So it was isolated, especially for people who were of lower class than the Romans. One commentator says this about Jesus' trials and his crucifixion here in this moment. The trials of the Lord Jesus Christ are history's most egregious miscarriages of justice. In them, the friend of sinners faced the hatred of sinners. The judge of all the earth was arraigned before petty human judges. The exalted Lord of glory was humiliated by being mocked, spit upon, and beaten. The holy and righteous one was treated as a vile sinner. The one who is the truth was impugned by evil liars, but shining forth out of the satanic darkness of his trials is the absolute innocence of Jesus Christ. The evil efforts of his accusers are turned upside down so to actually confirm his blamelessness. So we see a contrast of an innocent man being put on trial with evil men, taking upon himself the death and the beatings we deserve. And so Pilate asks him the question, the question being, are you a king? In essence, it's the same kind of question that every single human being has to deal with, and that's the question, who is Jesus to you? Who is the Christ? And so Pilate asked the question, who are you? And, and so we're aware, Pilate didn't ask this question to find out if Jesus was the Messiah. He asked the question to see if Jesus was a threat to Rome. He's asking Jesus, do you have intent to overthrow the Roman Empire, the Roman government? And then Jesus, of course, answers the question as we start now looking at the upside-down kingdom of Jesus Christ. He starts asking, Jesus responds with this, uh, verse uh, 34. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or do others say this about me? Jesus is now at the heart of Pilate. See, Jesus' kingdom, the upside-down kingdom, is about going after people's hearts. See, within a monarchy, even within the United States of America, rule has more to do with governing people's actions than it has anything to do with governing people's hearts. Take the issue of gun laws, for instance. Everyone's like, oh boy, he's going to go there. The issue of gun law, right, you have two different sides of the issue, two different sides of the fence. One side of the fence states we've got a gun problem. And what we have to do is we've got to get rid of guns. We've got to put more laws in place. And if we put more laws in place, 
It'll keep people safer and we'll have a better society. What we need is we, we need to regulate. We need to register people. We, we, need to, we need to get a hold of people's actions, if you will. And the other side of the fence is, well, if you take away guns, right, just two different arguments. I'm not telling you where I side. Two different sides, right? The other one is it's a spiritual problem. It's a hard problem. You take away guns, you still have knives. You take away knives, uh, well, you still have rocks. If you take away rocks, well, you still have fists, right? And until we learn the, the, the hard problem that people have, people are still going to kill people. That's never going to be fixed until the heart is ruled over. Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom about uh, putting in laws to regulate your behavior, but it's about coming into your heart to be the king of your heart to change the heart. See, until we solve the heart issue, we can't solve any of the other issues. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we don't have any laws. That would be ridiculous. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have healthy conversations about how we regulate certain things, but we have to understand something. There is a deeper issue than being a gun issue. There is a major heart problem within humanity, and Jesus's kingdom isn't about changing everybody's behavior and getting them to modify their behavior through laws and the threat of punishment of breaking said law. One thing I've learned as a parent, fear is a horrible motivator for your children. You ever realize that with your kids? It's a horrible motive. It doesn't change their heart. It makes them anxious. It makes them bitter. So God hasn't come with just uh, these Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments, and say, obey these things or you're going to hell. No, the Bible actually says about the law, the law is used to show you that you have a problem. Paul says, I wouldn't know what sin was if I didn't have the law of God. It shows me how, how short I fall of God's perfect standard. And then it puts me in a place of, of needing God. He's after your heart. He's asking Pilate, well, is this a rumor? Is this, is this something you heard from a Roman? Is this a rumor? Or do you realize that I'm the king and that my kingdom is about bringing new people into the kingdom of God, a new family, a new type of living? Now, again, to use North Korea as a contrast, you have a group of people there who are definitely obedient to the monarchy at hand. It's not the kind of kingdom we want, is it? It's not the kind of kingdom that we long for, that we yearn for. The other thing in addition to this is that Jesus' kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, is not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's after the spiritual side of things, back to that heart of things. Listen to what happens in Matthew chapter 22. Do you remember some people come to Jesus, and they want to trap him with politics? And so they ask him about paying Caesar taxes. Should we pay Caesar taxes? What should we do with this coin? What do you say we do? They're trying to trap him to, to get him to admit some kind of guilt against Rome or against the Jews themselves. And Jesus answers and he says, okay, hold on. If you look at the coin, whose face is on the coin? Caesar. Okay. Caesar's face is on the coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And it's, it's alluding to the reality of the great Imago Dei, the image of God. What's on the coin? Oh, Caesar? Give it to Caesar. Whose image do you bear? Oh, you're made in the image of God. Give back to God what is God's. See, Jesus wants the human heart. He wants the person. He wants to rule over them in a very beautiful way. In fact, his kingdom, number three here, is a kingdom above all kingdoms. I don't have time to get into all these points I'm going to give you here this morning, but the reality of his kingdom being over all kinds of uh, being over all kingdoms. We know that Jesus rules over everyone, even the president of the United States. He is the ruler of America, even if most people don't recognize him as such. But we know that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And there's this already not yet about his kingdom. He is ruling. He is reigning. We are his subjects in that kingdom. And he has no boundaries to that kingdom. But this kingdom is a kingdom that gets to the heart of the matter. It's a kingdom that overcomes physical misery. That's number one. It's a healing kingdom. When Jesus, in the Gospels, he grabs 70 of his disciples, and he sends out the 70 disciples, and listen to what he says to them. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. It's a pretty amazing deal. Go out, heal people, and tell them the kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus is the inauguration of that kingdom. Number two is kingdom overcomes death and brings resurrection. It overcomes death and brings resurrection. 
Number three, his kingdom overcomes demonic oppression, addiction, and overcomes oppression, addiction, and brings deliverance. What's amazing is if you go back through the Old Testament, you won't find occurrences of men or women being delivered from demonic oppression. It's not until we get into the Gospels that we see the power of God in his kingdom as he delivers people from demonic oppression and addiction, and he delivers them from that kind of guilt and shame. It's pretty amazing. Luke eleven twenty. But it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it's a kingdom that brings resurrection and deliverance. It's a kingdom, number four, that brings conversion. It has the power and the ability to bring you to repentance and to convert you to childlike service. Childlike service. Now, I know for those of you who have parents, you're like, wait a minute. What does childlike service look like? Because <laughs> some of your kids aren't super, like, stoked about serving you. But when they do, right, when your child, when you say as a parent, if you're a parent this morning, and they're little, like I've got some of my little kids, and you say, hey, would you, would you go help your sister clean your room? And they go, okay, Dad, isn't this, like, the best feeling ever? At the same time, like, I'm, I'm caught in this reality of knowing that this has to be a God thing. Because I feel like in my kingdom, there are times that I say, listen, listen, my, my life will be more peaceful if I can just get my kids uh, to modify their behavior. Just do what I want you to do, and all will be well in the kingdom of the Richardson household. But I, and I've been able to do that, usually through threats. <laughs> I will take you out of this world if you do not stop. Right? It's at a certain point they can see it in your eyes. They know at a certain point, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And they keep doing it, right? Don't do that. And then there's something in your flesh that triggers and you go, don't do that. They can see the little shake in dad's hand, you know? And then all of a sudden, they don't do that. Now, Jesus comes and doesn't just modify that behavior. He has the ability to bring real conversion and real childlike service to his people. So that it isn't just about you doing what you think is right. It's him doing it through you because you're serving him. And then number five, his kingdom, and I have verses for all these. I, don't have, I should have written them down for you. I don't have time to go on all of them this morning, but all of, all of these have verses that are associated with the kingdom of God. His kingdom brings forgiveness and overcomes condemnation. You see, Jesus has the ability as your king to resurrect you and bring conversion. It's, it, Jesus says it this way, right? You cannot see the kingdom of God unless what? You're born again. And this is what the conversation, a Jewish leader named Nicodemus who comes at night in secret and says, what's going on? And he says, you want to know what's going on? You've got to be born again. And you can't be born again unless it's through the power of God. And so when one is born again because of the kingdom of God, it's at hand. Jesus is at hand. He has the ability to convert, as the Old Testament says, your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That's what every single person in the world needs. They need a conversion experience. They need to be baptized. They need to come to know Jesus Christ. And through that, Jesus and his kingdom relieves you from demonic oppression, addiction, and he brings deliverance to that. And, and, and then after that's all said and done, he has the ability to overcome the condemnation that came with all of your stupid mistakes in your past. This is huge. Now, it might not be huge if you've been perfect all your life, and if that's you this morning, we should be worshiping you. But see, there are mistakes that we have, and it's one thing to know the forgiveness of God and the goodness of God, and then, and then we, we, we start to move on in life, and we feel guilty from all of the stupid things that he saved us from. Here's the good news. The good news is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned any longer because you've been covered by the blood of the lamb, by Jesus Christ, who in his upside down kingdom, he says, it's not about just serving me. I came to serve you. I came to wash your feet. I came to die on the cross for your sins. So you can, in his kingdom, you can have, as it says in number six, in his kingdom, true righteousness, which is a right standing before God, peace and joy. In fact, God's kingdom is related to a wedding feast in Revelation. Now, I, I got in trouble this, this summer with my wife. I know it's not summer yet, but you'll understand why. Because I, I said yes 
to a bunch of weddings this summer. I've got three in June alone. Three in June alone. And the reason I can't say no is because I love doing them. I love them. Because there's like, like you've never, I've never been to a depressing wedding. I'm sure they exist. Most of them are probably in Vegas at some point at 3 a.m., but I've not done one of those. And they're filled with joy and laughter and love. And it's such an opportunity, it's the perfect opportunity to preach the gospel because the wedding is the gospel. You want to know what the gospel is all about? Go to a good Christian wedding. That's the gospel. What's the gospel about? Come to a good wedding. And that brings peace and joy. That's the kingdom of God. It reigns with an everlasting kind of peace and joy. And then lastly, number seven, the kingdom brings purpose to life. The kingdom gives you aim, so you're not aimless, so you're not shooting after nothing in this life. I get this from Revelation chapter 1, verses 5. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he made us a kingdom. And then it goes on, he says, the kingdom, in this kingdom, it says this, we are priests to God the Father. Have you ever identified yourself, like really identified yourself as that, that you are a priest this morning? First Peter says it this way, you are a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. What that means is you have the same authority, same power, same ability to be a pastor as me or Wayne or anybody else that you've looked, looked to as a pastor or priest. That same spirit of God, that same love of God has given you purpose in your life, and that's to show the good love of God to your neighbors and your friends worldwide. Isn't that cool? This is the kingdom that we're a part of. One commentator says, what the kingdom creates when it draws men and women in, into its power is a priesthood of believers, and priests are, above all, ministers. You're a minister this morning. I want to try to make eye contact with every single person so it like, gets in you. You are a minister. And it goes on, he says, if I can remember where I was at here. If you belong to the kingdom of God, you belong to a royal priesthood. You are a priest. Your, cro- your calling is to draw near to God with the burdens of people and draw near to people with the blessings of God. That's what it means to be a priest. And then Jesus goes on, he answers Pilate. And number four, he says, uh, this is, we just went through the kingdom above all kingdoms. Number four, it's a kingdom of truth. This isn't a kingdom built on emotional instability, going wherever the culture tells it to go doing whatever you feel like doing. It's built on solid truth. And Pilate asked the question to Jesus, what is truth? Isn't that the same question so many ask today? Notice, nothing's changed in Jesus' day as it is today. What is truth? And Pilate doesn't hang out long enough to find out, does he? No, he goes outside. And then he goes to the people. And he says to them, he asks them the question. He says, I find this man innocent. Notice Pilate finds him guilt-free. But then he says, okay, you have a custom. At this custom, you let go of somebody. You, you let someone go free. It's part of the custom that they would have at the Passover. I'm sure in some way it was related to the reality that, that God passed over his people in, in the punishment of what happened to Pharaoh and the children. And so through a visible act, they would let go a guilty man as if he was not guilty, as if God had passed over his sins. And so here's this custom, and he's thinking in his mind, surely they're going to see this man who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's surely no threat. He's bound, and he's, he's, he's nobody. And, and, and now I've got Barabbas, who it says in some of your translations, it says he was a robber. But let's be clear, he wasn't just a robber. He was an insurrectionist. He was known as a violent man deserving of death. Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. The other Gospels in Mark and Luke note him specifically as a murderer. This is a bad dude. And so surely Pilate in his mind is thinking, they're going to let Jesus go. And they don't. They cry out for Barabbas. Which leads me to this point that Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of selflessness. It's a kingdom of giving up oneself for others' rights, others' freedoms. It's a, it's a kingdom of servitude. It's a kingdom for the benefit of others, is it not? And so I, ha- I, had, I knew I was starting John 
just for those of you who may not know, by the time we're done, we'll have been in the Gospel of John for about a year. So we've spent about a year, a year's worth of our time, just getting into the Gospel. And the next thing we've got after this is we might do a couple uh, topical messages, but we're preparing to do the book of Jonah, which I'm really excited for. And in that, in that year's time, before we started, I came across a video about Barabbas, and I wanted to show it like the day I've had it. I've been sitting on this video for about a year. And I want to show it to you. It's about eight minutes long, and then I want to say a couple closing remarks before we leave. But it, it shows us the idea of the upside-down kingdom and what it means with the gospel. And so I hope you find it as enjoyable as I did. If you would, please cue up the, the video. We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. And so in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free? Open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper. What, what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We, we want Barabbas. Yeah. Give us Barabbas. They give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience in Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, for you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. And God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent, for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the Heavenly Father. gospel. 
Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it. No, you won't. You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own marriage, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me and say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No. God, I say, I'm so ashamed. Give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed. Or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive? Let me have your sin, son. Okay. And I give him my sin. And I stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, go son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off thinking that we were going to set ourselves free? It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If His blood is sufficient for your salvation, His blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough. So the idea of kingdom and it being upside down, that Jesus isn't the monarchy we typically would think of. He doesn't come to regulate your behavior. He comes to change your heart. And he's come to serve you, and he's come to love you, and he's come to make you part of something bigger. He's come to give you a purpose. And so one of the things that I try to do, and I probably have failed many times over the years in preaching, is to not be a pastor that just preaches law just a bunch of to-dos, but that at the heart of it, we preach what has already been done. We preach and share the good news of what has been accomplished through the life of Christ. And then after that, then we give a response. Well, what's the, what is the right response? Right, again, as a parent, like there's times where we took my kids to the zoo this week, you know, 
and enjoy the great day. No, they didn't pay for anything, right? I wish they did, but they're just not capable of doing that yet. And then after we go to the zoo, as soon as we get in the car, they start to whine for something else. Well, do we get to go home and, and watch a movie now? No, we're going to go to bed. But I want to watch a movie. You are so ungrateful. It's the first response, and it's the right response for us, is to see the goodness of what Christ has done. And the first response should be worship. Gratitude. Wow. Thank you. I love the line. I stand in this empty space of forgiveness as Jesus walks to the cross that I deserve. That's the first response, gratitude. But the second response and the third response, the first one is pray. Well, the second, but the first one on my notes here is to pray. If you remember Jesus as he taught his disciples, he said, this is what you pray. Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first response is for us to pray for more of God's kingdom to be right here, right now. Is it not? Like God, like expand the borders. Overtake more hearts. Overtake more people. And we should be praying that. And the second one, which takes just a little bit more explaining, is, is to be the kingdom, to love your neighbor, to actually be the kingdom. A verse that I think typifies this comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Where Jesus says to his people, to those subjects who are part of his kingdom, you are the light of the world. A city, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What I think we see in here is that Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you're like a city. You're like a town. A town might work better because we're in the town of Truckee. You're like a town. You're a town on top of a hill. You're a town within a town. You're a kingdom within a kingdom. And, and, and what, he, what he's kind of pointing towards this reality is that, that the church, God's people, should live in such a way of what the real kingdom is going to look like in eternity. We should be loving our neighbor. We should be serving each other. And we should show the world that when they come in on a Sunday, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. There, there, there are people who are struggling, but there's a little bit more joy than what's normal, Right? And that we're to influence the kingdom that is beyond our kingdom into Truckee. So, and some of you know, you know the kingdom of God. This is, this is the only kind of glimpse to a certain degree that, that you get on a Sunday morning. Because some of you on Monday, Monday through Friday, maybe even Monday through Saturday, you're going to go into your job and, and you're going to see what the kingdom of the world looks like. If you're in construction, you really know. There's a different kind of language. There's a different kind of ideology. There's a different kind of way of living. There's a different kind of influence. Look at the, what the kingdom of the world produces. Look, look at the, the fruit that the kingdom of the world produces and the way that the world tries to do things. And then, then you come in on Sunday and you go, this is a different kind of kingdom. This is a kingdom of service. So we try to say, right, as, as, as church-going people, we don't, we don't come to church to consume. We're not consumers. This isn't Kmart. This isn't Walmart. This is the kingdom of God. Are you with me? We don't have the best of the best. We don't, man, I, if I can just, I've got a little bit more time with you. Just to be honest with you, Easter was a little hard for me because I, I follow all these church guys all over the country and people I admire and people I look up to. And, and boy, oh boy, there are some churches who sure know how to do Easter. They got it all. They got every bell and every whistle and every light. I saw one church, they, it's filled with thousands of people. They were playing around with a bouncy ball in church. You know, I just thought, what? We didn't have a bouncy ball. Well, maybe we need to have a bouncy ball next, next year. And, it, and for me, I, I go back to that simplicity of that what you produce in your church, it produces the kind of people within your church. And I don't want our church people to come to church and just consume and think, what a radical experience this is. I, I want our church to actually love Jesus. That we're not so concerned about the worship. They were not so concerned about whether the pastor's eloquent or, or funny or, or shows good videos, but we're just we're concerned with the fact that the, the main thing needs to be the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus. And so the Jesus gets emphasized, emphasized and the Word of God gets emphasized, and, and the glory of God gets, gets put up on the pedestal. And, and then through that, like stuff happens. God does things, but we're to, we're to be an upside-down kingdom. The church should not look like the world. We're not a movie theater. We're not a rock concert. We're the kingdom of God. And a kingdom has 
subjects that, that serve and they work for the greater good. And so as a church, to be a part of the kingdom is to be about each other's greater good. But it's also to be about the greater good of the rest of the world, is it not? Sierra Bible Church isn't just, doesn't just exist for the, the town of SBC, but also the town of Truckee, and you could extend that to the idea of Barabbas. We're going to love the town of Truckee because we're going to love the town of Truckee. We want to love people in our community. We, we, want, we want this to be said of SBC, that if you removed SBC from Truckee, Truckee would not be as good of a place as it is. Which means we need to be involved in the community. We need to be involved in Truckee Thursdays. We need to show up to football games and be in the community. We, we, need, to, we need to serve on Truckee Cleanup Day. We need to be shopping locally as much as possible. I know it's expensive. We've got a family of four. We can't necessarily do it. We want to be about the greater good. We want to have a local dentist. We want to have uh, to, to make tr- like Truckee just a better place. One pastor, he says, I wish I would have had this on a slide for you. He says it this way. Talking about the text, he says, I'm struck by the simple fact that cultural change, listen carefully here, cultural change is always a byproduct. Changing society is what he's saying, is always a byproduct, but it's never the main goal. The main goal is always loving service. If we love and serve our neighbors, city and Lord, it will definitely mean social changes, but Christians must not seek to take over and control society as an end in itself. If we truly seek to serve, we'll be gladly given a certain measure of influence by those around us. Here's a tough statement, and it should rub some of you wrong. That's my prayer. If we seek power directly just to get power and make the world more like us, we will neither have influence nor be of service. Everyone around us will view us with alarm as well they should. You know what he's saying? You know what Jesus is saying? My kingdom is upside down. You know Christians have never done well in history when they have ruled and reigned. We're not a kingdom of the kind of power and strength that the world looks up to and possesses. You want to change the world? You want to change culture? Wash their feet. But Lord, that's going to be hard. Yep. Lord, that's going to be slow. Yep. Yet here we are 2,000 years later worshiping Jesus. It's the way we do it. It's the way that we take control. We're not supposed to be in power. We're supposed to be in service. And one day Jesus will reign and it'll be like a big wedding party. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we... um. We ask for your kingdom to come. Lord, as an example, we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remind us to pray this every day to to bring about your kingdom, but also give us the influence to be the light in the world, the city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that shines out and influences the culture around us because we're servants and we, we love, Lord. And we trust you to do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.